everyone, and welcome to Word After Word, a podcast on writing. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and with me as always is the professor, Dr. David Hicks. Hello, Paul. How nice, are you? Nice to hear your voice. Apparently, this is every six months we do this podcast. No, no, we're not going to talk about that. It's just, uh, it makes it more special the longer it takes. But it's, it's not that we're deficient or inept. Uh, we don't want any listeners to get that impression. We're, oh, no, absolutely we're just, not. We're just a slow burn. We're, you know, professionals. <laughs> yes, every, every episode has to be a gem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we've thrown out 17 episodes that just weren't good enough. <laughs> I think the listeners should know that. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, but so we should say that we do have a plan moving forward and episodes are going to be coming out on a more regular basis. Yes, I promise. And we can both take uh, some responsibility for that, various schedules and so forth. I, I think we could work that out off the air, but it's mostly <laughs> your fault. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> just kidding. Suffice it to say, we've both been very busy. Yes, yes. Uh, there's, been, there's been a lot going on, which yeah. we may touch on in other venues, but not here. No. Yes. We've, and we just lost our values, and now we're back. <laughs> exactly. Before we begin, I do want to give a shout out to my co-host here, who is now the recipient of a Fulbright scholarship, mm. which is a truly great honor, and congratulations to you. It's, it's pretty cool. Thank you, Paul. Uh, so I have to say, all the awards and honors and accolades you've been receiving in the past few years is, you know, it's just getting ridiculous. So many. <laughs> it's, it's, there was it's, the Oscar. Or well, it's, it's embarrassing. And you, need, you need to settle. You need to slow down a little bit. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in all seriousness, congratulations. You deserve everything you've received. And uh, you've worked hard for this. It's fitting that you reap the rewards Thanks. for your efforts. Thanks. Okay. Uh, now, today on the program, we'll be doing something a little bit different. Instead of talking to a guest, as we usually do, it'll just be us. We're going to give our recommendations for summer reading. Both David and I will give you three recommendations. Well, we, we decided on three recommendations each. David has gone to four. I always go the extra mile. <laughs> That's right, 110%. Uh, but these are books that we've enjoyed, and we think they are worth your time, and you will enjoy them yourself. Yes, and let me say right off the bat that I abhor the summer read, like the beach book, but these are good reads that you could read on the beach. Do you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. Okay. And no, I, I agree with that 100%. A summer reading is just a, a really good book that you read oh, okay. in the summer. I picture uh, the beach umbrella. Not, there's nothing wrong with reading on the beach. In fact, it's a beautiful thing as long as you wear a sunblock. But uh, <laughs> I'm just saying the beach read or the summer read seems to imply like a breezy, you know, plot-driven, page-turner type of... Yeah, uh, a little fluff piece. Yeah, fluffy. That's the word, a fluff piece. And we're not about fluff here on Word After Word. No, we are not. But we are all about getting clicks and putting summer reading list in the title. <laughs> we'll get more people to listen. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's marketing. Good job. Uh, so this has not been pre-screened. I don't know what David's going to recommend. He does not know what I'm going to recommend. And as we've never done this before, we don't know how it's going to go. So I guess we just jump into it. Okay, let's jump. Okay, I've been talking quite a bit. David, you start with your first recommendation. Okay, so my first is uh, a book that's gotten a lot of attention and, and the books I'm gonna talk about today have, are very from very popular and with a lot of critical acclaim that have received a lot of critical acclaim and uh, up and coming writers that you may never, never have heard of. So the first is um, maybe the one that's gotten the most acclaim and that's Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers, which was this year a finalist for the National Book Award and has in fact, been included on many 
uh, best of list, and it's uh, it's well deserved. It's a really good book. Mackay was a short story writer that I kind of was drawn to more than a decade ago when she kept appearing in the best American short story collections. I think it was four or five years in a row, there was a story by Rebecca Mackay in the best American short stories collection. Uh, and I just thought, wow, she's a fantastic short story writer, maybe one of the best in the country. Not maybe, one of the best in the country. And I just loved her stories, uh, kept finding them in different magazines and enjoying them. And then she came out with her first novel, The Borrower, which uh, did, I think, very well. It was a, a very good book. And then 100 Year House followed that. And now with this book, Great Believers, she's kind of launched into a different a level of, I guess, critical acclaim, fame, that kind of thing. And the one of the things I love about Rebecca is that she is a writer's writer. Like she makes a living by being a writer. She does a lot of readings and a lot of appearances and promotes really well, but also promotes other writers really well. She's a very good literary citizen. And the other thing I like about her is that this book is her best. Uh, she's getting better and better at the novel form as she goes along. So this book has, has two narrators and they pretty much alternate throughout the whole book. It's a, it's a big book, but it, it moves really quickly because of the plot movements of each story. And the, the one story, the main story is of Yale Tishman, who is a developmental director for a Chicago art gallery. It's very much a Chicago book. During the 80s, right around 85, 86, during the AIDS crisis, during the Reagan era in Chicago. And Yale is gay with a partner and he is kind of pursuing this uh, sale or uh, donation to, a, to, a, to his art gallery. And that's a plot all its own, whether he can get these really sort of amazing works into his gallery. But at the same time, the, the real substantial plot is that everyone in his community is dying. His loved ones are dying all around him. So there's that. And then one of the friends who dies, Nico, his little sister is Fiona. And the other plot is Fiona, Nico's little sister, 30 years later, sort of in our own time, in Paris, in search of her missing daughter with whom she has a, a troubling relationship. And you wouldn't think those two go together very well, but while in Paris, Fiona, who is in touch with and connects with someone else who's who is from that world in the 80s. Fiona kind of figures out the depth and the meaning of having grown up in the 80s with Yale and his friends. And I, I won't give away the ending to either plot, but it's big. The ending is really big in both plots and really well earned because we have this sort of buildup where we completely fall in love with Yale and with Fiona and follow their separate stories alternately throughout the whole novel. And then by the end, it's just kind of in a beautiful way, devastating, like in a, in a really full and rich way. And it's just a, it's a terrific book. It, it just doesn't let go of you the whole time. And, and it, the payoff is really cool. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I haven't, I haven't read, I've heard of her and her, and her previous works, but I have not read any. Yeah. And we I should, we, sh we should say that you and I read kind of different genres. So I think, I think that's an asset to this podcast. Like we, we bring to the table, like I read mostly literary fiction, but I think Great Believers is more mainstream. Two, two or th three of the books I'm going to talk about today are really mainstream. Okay. But, you know, I read more like literary mainstream. You read more uh, sci-fi or something. Sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, you know. which is really cool. So we kind of complement each other, I would say. But 
I, I doubt that we will have read each other's recommendations. That's possible. But that time period, that uh, the mm. 1980s, was a really, it's a really rich period to set stories in because it was a very transitional time between the, the, the chaos of the 70s and the 60s and then to, to what we have now and the, the start of the 90s. The 80s were just, it's just a weird time. I, I agree. And, and it, the 80s gets remembered and celebrated for all the kitschy pop culture stuff. But this, this book took me back to, in the 80s, I was living in New York City and uh, I, was, I was going to graduate school at NYU and you know, a couple of my friends passed away from AIDS and it was all around us everywhere. It was just, you, you couldn't avoid it. And it was devastating. I mean, these, like these promising young men just had to deal with their imminent or potential quick death, you know, and just deteriorating conditions. You know, in the meantime, the economy was pretty good and gay men and women were sort of thriving and having their own kind of experiences in the city. And a real presence in the city and in, in New York, but also in Chicago. So Mackay kind of captures that time, right? In the mid eighties when it was really going down. Like, you know, it, it was like a, it was an epidemic at first and you heard about it, but then it became really so real and the government did very little about it. So it was just, it was just I mean, a terrible era. Nothing about it. It yeah. was a, it was a very fearful time. I was living in Philadelphia oh, yeah. in the eighties and no one knew what to do. Yeah, really. That we didn't know anything. We didn't know what it, what this was. Right. Uh, and yeah, it was a very it was a very difficult time. Yeah. And the impressive thing about Mackay is that she's pretty young. I mean, she's uh, she was a kid during that time, I think. Whereas you know, I remember very well because I was in my twenties. But uh, the fact that Rebe- Rebecca captured it so well, and I'm sure there was a lot of research involved and a lot of conversations probably with with family and friends but also she remembers it as a as a kid i think it's all the more impressive that she gets it right she totally gets it right i mean she just nails it the culture of gay men in chicago in the 80s so it's really cool okay so we're gonna have uh just to let you know all the all the things we recommend here will be in the show notes and on our website wordafterwordpodcast.com mm-hmm. uh, so you can check all the if you if any of these interest you check them out there so my first selection is called There, There by Tommy Orange. Set in Oakland, California, it's Tommy Orange's debut novel, follows several characters creating a multi-generational examination of Native American life in a modern urban landscape. As the novel progresses, we meet each of the characters and we get to know their home lives and their environments and their feelings as they prepare to attend the Big Oakland powwow, a gathering to celebrate Native American tradition and pageantry. And many of the characters will meet there and they'll interact and the way they meet and the interactions they have are unusual and sometimes devastating. This is a raw and unflinching examination of sadness, violence, loss, but also pride, identity, and self-worth. It's filled with broken families and broken dreams. Each character tries to find their own identity and their own way of understanding what it means to be Native and American. They explore the varied ways of being an Indian and feeling like an Indian, if that's even possible with their detachment from tradition and history. Tommy Orange writes in short, quick chapters, sometimes only a paragraph long, that effortlessly weaves its way through this multitude of characters and voices, but never loses focus on who they are and what their story is until it all culminates in this grand narrative of tragedy, of heroism, and finding yourself among the ruins of society. It is a stunning piece of work, and Tommy Orange's voice is one that is important, and hopefully will be around for a long, long time. That sounds good. 
It's really I, good. I was I, I was, that. <laughs> I was really blown away by this one. It's got it's been on the bestseller list. It's really well done. I th- I thought uh, the way Tommy Orange writes is it reminded me a lot of Kurt Vonnegut's style. Mm-hmm. Not not in subject matter, but how he writes in those short little quippy, you know, just paragraphs or just a sentence or maybe a page or two. Mm-hmm. I, I was really impressed by this. Cool. Tommy graduated from the MFA at the Institute of American Indian Arts, Indian Arts, and that, that's a really cool program. I mean, I, some listeners might know that I co-direct an MFA program in Denver called the Mile High MFA, but not, it's not really a rival program. It's a, just a really good program at the Institute of American Indian Arts, and uh, he kind of is this sort of, uh, not the poster boy for that MFA program, but he's one of the stars that's come out of it, and I think we could say right now that there is a kind of native renaissance in literature because we've got many native writers now that are being published and sort of coming to the forefront. Therese Mallott, uh, we have one in Denver, Erica Worth, whose book I'm going to talk about during the next podcast. But there's a, there's a really, uh, and I, I think the, the Institute of IAIA is not, re- well, maybe partly responsible for that movement. They've done a really good job taking uh, new native writers and developing their craft so that they are getting published. They are getting a lot of recognition for their beautiful and troublesome literature. It's, it's great that you're recommending it. I think Tommy's a really up and coming writer and everybody, uh, the book is doing really well. Yeah, it is doing incredibly well. That's uh, interesting. I did not know that about his MFA programmer. Yeah. So that's really, that's really cool. Uh, I, I think you, did you, have you read Sherman Alexi? I have not. Uh, it's, it's, I think you could tra- sort of trace a line from Alexi to, to Tommy Orange and be safe in doing that. There's a, a lot of echoes of Alexi in his writing. That's good to know. Uh, so, David, what's your next recommendation? My next recommendation is a debut novel by Claire Lombardo, published by Doubleday Press, called The Most Fun We Ever Had. Lombardo is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, uh, a recent graduate, maybe a couple of years ago. And this is, I think this was the book she was working on at Iowa. And it is a whopper. It is a long, gorgeous, sprawling family novel. It's over 500 pages, maybe. It was probably around 600 in manuscript form. I just reviewed this book for Prairie Schooner, one of my favorite magazines. So it's sort of fresh in my mind. It comes out next week. It comes out 24th or 5th, something like that, June 24th. And it's already been translated in several languages. It's gotten some really good promotion before pre-publication promotion. It's essentially a story about the, the Sorensen family. David and Marilyn are the patriarch and matriarch. They have four daughters. The daughters are grown now or mostly grown. Uh, one is still pretty like a 20-year-old or so. I can't remember. But the rest are grown. And so the novel bounces points of view among these characters, we get David's, we get Marilyn's, we get each of the four daughters' points of view, and then we get the point of view of a son of one of the daughters that she gave up for adoption when she was a teen or very young. And after 17 years, the son has found her and wants to be, you know, he's been bounced around from foster home to foster home, and now he's back in her life. And that's the that's the plot trigger, like that's the inciting incident, his return to one of the daughter's lives. But Claire Lombardo really nicely anchors her book on that. In fact, the plot sort of goes back into all their lives and their past and their present and kind of digs up old stuff among the sisters, 
digs up some old trouble with the main, the father and mother. It goes back like 30 years, 40 years, comes, comes up to the present again. It's, it's really a remarkable, remarkably structured book. Uh, and I, I looked up Claire's website. It's, it's fun to look up and see that she charted it all out. She had like colored post-it notes on her wall. Um, <laughs> Where and she, you have to like you have seven points of view. You have over five hundred pages. You have like forty years to cover, right? So she kind of just—it's a juggling act. Like she just juggles seven different colored balls in the air, and she catches them all at the end, which is a remarkable feat. Yeah, yeah, so, that's that, that's a very impressive thing to do. I mean, just to have really one is. or two characters and their point of views, yeah, to keep everything straight, but to have an entire sprawling narrative like that, it's. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a very impressive feat. It is. And, and you, you, you kind of just don't, you know, like a great athletes make everything look easy. Lombardo structures it. So it, it feels easy. You're just going from one point of view to another and we're going to backstory. We're going back in the present, but we always know where we are and we know, always know who we are with because each character has their own voice, right? So, and their own story and own personality. So we go, Oh, Oh yeah, I, I get it. This is, Wendy, like this is, you know, the different characters, we get their voice. So we're not confused. And the other remarkable thing about this book, and I don't think I've ever read ever a book that does this, is that Lombardo actually writes about a, a main, the main couple in love, like they love each other. Imagine a literary novel that writes about love like, like really well, like the characters get along really well. They've been married successfully for, I don't know, 40 something years. And they actually adore each other and they have sex. Yeah. Still, romance like, novels don't do that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 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 thinking all along, well, this is all going to crash, but it, it doesn't actually. I mean, they have their difficulties, right? Um, but yeah. one of the things I was most curious about when I interviewed Claire is how did how did you do that? Like nobody writes well about a couple that is in love. You know, there's always trouble. There's always deterioration of a marriage. How many books have we read? where a marriage starts off okay and, and then deteriorates, right? And everybody's pissed at each other by the end. Well, yeah, everyone, every, you know, having someone, having people estranged. Right. It's kind of the starting point of this. That's book. it. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you maintain tension in a book when the two main characters love each other? Well, you know, you show a scene where they're having sex or they're, or they're you know, getting along really well. And then you immediately follow that with difficulty with one of the kids. And in fact, the four daughters feel kind of resentful of their parents for being so loving because it's created this standard <laughs> that they can't possibly live up to in their own relationships. That's an so, interesting twist. Yeah. yeah. So they all have trouble in their relationships. They all have very difficult relationships, mostly their own fault. Like the men they are married to or with are generally good guys, but they are just constantly screwing things up either with each other or in their relationships. They, and a couple of them blame their parents for being so damn loving. <laughs> so which is which is a nice twist and it really works very well excellent it's something you mentioned earlier before is not is going back and forward through time and different narrators in different places that's a really difficult thing to do to have a i don't know what you'd call it a spatial awareness yeah so like you think about the obvious example is faulkner's as i lay dying which has uh many narrators uh, all the family members but it's just they're doing one thing it's like it's the the time constraint is pretty tight. They're not also, uh, if you think about books like that, they usually aren't also spreading that plot out into like four decades. You know what I mean? Right. And, and they're also not doing one thing. They're not all talking about the same thing. 
as they are as they lay dying. They're actually they have their own plots going on, even though they're related to the other the other people in, who are who have their own points of view. So it's really it's really quite amazing, and it it's it took a lot of work. I just envy uh, envy Claire for having pulled this off, and she does it really well. And I think I think the book's going to do really well too. Well, that's that's really interesting that it's already been translated into multiple languages. Yeah, it, yeah. that's that's not a common thing to have happen, is it? Yeah, when when a a force like a powerful publisher like Doubleday puts its marketing money behind a book, then you know it, the book's probably going to do well. When they already start translating it and it's getting a lot of pre-orders, a lot of pre-publicity marketing, then you know it's probably going to do well. The, yeah. the the big the big publishers tend to choose a handful of books to put their money behind. And uh, I think they've chosen this one to back. Okay. Backed by big book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's, I mean, so that's not out yet. That'll be by the time this is uh, released. Yeah. By the time this podcast is released, it'll probably just out. Or yeah. just before. Depending on how quickly you edit. So my next selection is Children of Blood and Bone by Tony Adiemi. I... As we mentioned, I am a lover of genre fiction, specifically sci-fi and fantasy. And in the case of fantasy, I feel that it gets a bad rap. I understand that when it's done poorly, it can be cringeworthy, falling into tropes and cliches that are well-trodden. But when it's done well, it can be something really special. And Children of Blood and Bone is something special. First of all, it's set in a world that's inspired by the author's West African heritage, making for a setting that is unique and different but also refreshing in a genre that, I, like I said, can rely too heavily at times on well-worn ideas. It primarily follows Zaylee, a rebellious teenager, as she struggles to help her family and her people in a world where there was once magic, but that magic has been removed and replaced with a repressive government that inflicts a strict class system and harsh and cruel laws. Through multiple point-of-view characters, we get to know this world and the people who live in it and the secret of where the magic went and if it can ever be restored. The world building in Children of Blood and Bone is exceptional. The characters are compelling and they defy the genre expectations. It deals with themes of race and class, power and brutality. It follows the struggle of marginalized people as they fight not only for equality exactly, but just a right to be who they are. It also deals with family and responsibility and the complex relationship with faith and spirituality and the politics of a secular society. But ultimately, Children of Blood and Bone is Simply an adventure story, a multi-layered adventure story, but an adventure story nonetheless. It keeps you riveted throughout, and it is a unique tale told by a unique voice, and it ends on a cliffhanger, so there's more to come. Mm. So is this an intended trilogy? Is that, is that the idea? I, or, uh, to be honest, I, I, I assume it's a trilogy because it's fantasy and everything's a trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I'm not sure. This is, like I said, the world building here is so unique and open-ended i can see this going on for quite a while Mm -hmm. it could turn into kind of like a wheel of time cool what is the adventure that you're talking about so the idea is that there are certain people who are who can wield magic but that Mm -hmm. magic is gone and now those people are uh, and they are being repressed and put down and brutalized basically Mm. so i mean i don't want to give too much away but you know you find out that there's a reason why the magic is no longer there. And the adventure is to try to figure out the mystery of where it went and, uh, and, and how to restore it. Yeah, that's good. Because we all want that magic, right? Exactly. Yeah, world without uh, magic. Yeah, but it does what, what a great fantasy work does is it deals with metaphor and allegory. 
this is, you know, it's a great adventure story, but there's, it's saying a lot about society and class and race, mm-hmm. and politics and faith. There's so much going on. It's a very, very rich and deep book. And the fact that it's set in more of an African style, it's, it, it's so different from, from your typical fantasy fair. I think the, as, as I last read it, they, they've already sold the movie, right? So it's going Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it's her first book as well. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. So, yeah, it is. Uh, so it's going to be, I think this one's going to be pretty big. Wonderful. Yeah, I think it already is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Sounds great. Yeah, I like it a lot. So what's next? So I just finished a series of 15 books by women writers. And I broke that streak for a book by Jonathan Evison called Lawn Boy. I will talk about those 15 books by women writers maybe next time. But I just finished Lawn Boy and I want to talk about it. It's got a great title. So Jonathan Evison is a writer. I think he's in California. He lived in British Columbia. This is very much a Northwest book. It could even be British Columbia. I'm not sure. It's just, Oh, it's in Squamish. It's set in Squamish. Um, so it's about a kid, Mike Munoz, who's of Mexican heritage. And he's a very smart kid who's living in a very poor neighborhood or trailer park. And um, it's very much a kind of book that does what I'm trying to do in my current novel, which is not the subject of this podcast. I'm just struggling with it. He writes really well about the class division in America while sticking to the story. Like there's not, it's a story about Mike and it's, it's not an agenda driven novel. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, He's not obviously making a point, but he's centering this on the character of Mike, who's, who's really smart and well-read, but he's just got a, he's just got a crap job, a series of crap jobs. But he really, he's very good at landscaping. Like he's really good at like trimming hedges into shapes. I can't remember what that's called, but like you make Topiary. That's it. He's a topiarist. <laughs> he's really good at topiary. And, uh, and at, like, he's got really good edges. Like he's good with a weed whacker. Like he's, he's really good at lawns. So, uh, and that's kind of cool uh, to, to really get into that mindset. And he's just an absolutely lovable kid who ends up something I can't tell you if you're going to read it, but it's a great surprise at the end. You could sort of see it coming all along. But Mike is throughout the novel engaged with these kind of rich guys who try to help him or appropriate him, but end up screwing up everything. And it ends up like coming back. And, there, and there's a love interest that's really fun. But he's, he thinks he should be in love with girls, but he ends up kind of like really liking this guy. And Everson just does it like so authentically. And I think it's part autobiographical. I think Everson was actually a landscaper for part of his life. I'm not sure about that though. But he writes very convincingly of it. So it's, it's kind of, it's a tough book, but it's very, very funny. The kid has got a great sense of humor, and Evison does humor really well too. Uh, so it's a it's a quick read. It's a short book. I read it. I think I read it in a whole, the whole thing in one day. Oh, wow. maybe two. But it's uh, so it's a quick read. It very nicely goes deep into the class divide in America, and it comes out the other end heroically for our main character. He ends up okay in a very good way that, you know, he's sort of a, a modern day hero, I would say. That's excellent. I like the fact that you said that it's very funny and it's written with humor because more often than not that a, that a serious novel, yeah, it doesn't have that, you know, know. that lighter tone. I know. Uh, but I, I, I find that if you have a lighter tone, you can make the more important things stand out. So, yes. you know, so yeah. it's a good, you have to have a good balance with that. Yeah. And I, I didn't, 
I didn't do a good job of that in my first book. I'm trying to do better with that in my second book. Just light, you know, darkness and light, a balance of uh, depth and humor really helps a book as, as it helps life. Yes. <laughs> and this, this in particular, Lawn Boy, I mean, the title is kind of funny, Lawn Boy. And it, <laughs> and it kind of gets that. Like, he's just got it. The kid has a great sense of humor. Everson writes with a great sense of humor. We're always coming back to it. Like, even in his hardest times, he swears really well. <laughs> you know, he's got a he's got a great vocabulary. So he's like a really smart lower class kid. So we've got that nice like he's got great phrases mixed in with the f bomb, and it's uh, it yeah. makes for a wonderful read. Excellent. I found that when doing manual labor, it's good to have a nice yes, broad, <laughs> yes. nice broad uh, cursing yes. vocabulary. I wish I could give it examples right now because I have some, but I can't. It's a family podcast. Yes. So my last selection is a graphic novel. I always have to have a graphic novel thrown in here for good, good measure. But this time I'm choosing Mr. Miracle by Tom King with art by Mitch Jarrods. It's published by DC Comics, and it's a collection of a 12-issue self-contained story arc that ran from 2017 to 2018. The character of Mr. Miracle is a lesser-known and, quite frankly, silly superhero created by the legendary creator Jack Kirby in the 1970s. But in... Tom King and Jared's hands, he becomes something different, more than just an obscure relic. It tells the story of Scott Free, aka Mr. Miracle, a superhero with the power to escape from any trap and to elude any danger. He's been able to funnel this power into a lucrative career as a celebrity escape artist and has settled down to raise a family. But things start to change when Scott is recruited to fight in a cosmic war against evil. I forgot to mention, he's also an alien descended from a race of gods. <laughs> Comics are weird, but you got to go with it, okay? <laughs> but interwoven to all these superhero shenanigans is a deeper meaning. King and Jareds use the story of Mr. Miracle as a metaphor for depression, a war fought against an unknown enemy, the sadness of being alone among others, the desire to be happy when oftentimes it seems to be impossible. There is a darkness so deep that even the greatest escape artist can't seem to find his way out. Mr. Miracle is dark and funny. It is sad and hopeful. King's writing is witty and powerful. Jared's art is vibrant and disturbing. And together they have crafted a unique vision and a compelling story. Uh, if you're not familiar with comic books, pick up Mr. Miracle. You will see why this is such a special medium and why it can tell stories that you can find nowhere else in ways that no other medium can tell them. Oh, so this, if for someone like me who doesn't read yeah. comics, this would be a good, not introductory exactly, but this would be a good sample. Absolutely. Uh, especially as far as uh, the superhero aspect of comic book. Mm -hmm. Comic books is a wide-ranging genre, but as far as the superhero genre, this is something really different. Mm. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of accolades. It's, I, if it hasn't won an Eisner, I think it's up for an Eisner. That's, that's like the main award you get for comic books, the Eisner Award. Mm -hmm. It's the Oscar of comics. Gotcha. And uh, it's, it's something that's really unique and different, and it's very powerful. But it still has superhero shenanigans. Yes, which yeah. we love. Yes. That um, sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I, I highly recommend this one. Tom King, by the way, he's a fairly new writer. He's been around for a few years. Uh, he was a former CIA agent uh, turned comic book writer. And the oh, my things, God. That's yeah, and the things he's been writing are he's been knocking out of the park for, for a few years now. Well, if you're in a CIA, you've got material, don't you? Yeah. Or you should. Actually, he does. Uh, one of his other uh, series was... Um, Sheriff of Babylon, which is set in Iraq during mm -hmm. the war. It's kind of a crime novel set in, or a crime graphic novel set in Iraq. So he uses a lot of his background on that one. Cool. 
Uh, yeah. So there you go. Thank you. The last one is uh, a little known writer who's about to become well known. His name is Stephen Dunn and uh, has published his second book by Tarpaulin Sky Press, Water and Power. And it's a very unusual book. It's a genre busting book. It's sort of aphoristic. It's, it's got these short uh, episodes. It's a, it's a series of interviews and it's all about his experience in the Navy. It is published as a novel but there's a lot of things published as novels these days that aren't really novels, but that's okay because the novel is kind of changing, becoming more fragmented, and, uh, and it's, there's nothing wrong with this. So I'll say it's a novel, but I'll also tell you that it's really mind-blowingly good in that it's poetic, it's very much memoir, it's other people's stories that Stephen interviewed. And it's also a little fictional, I think, because there's sort of fictionalized versions of stuff he went through. But I don't know this for a fact. I just can sense he's a very good craftsman. He's very good at crafting. There's some embellishment going on. Yeah, I've, I'm sort of relating to him with my own writing. Like I take stuff that I lived through and I craft it and it's pretty true. But I, you know, change some things here and there. I think that's what Stephen's up to. He mocks just by presenting as truth as it really happened the bureaucracy of the navy uh in fact that's the beauty of this book he just presents things as they really were or are and he lets me as the reader realize how insane and ridiculous they are he's presenting a point of view that counterattacks all the paid advertising that happens in like basketball arenas and other sporting events and other events where the military is actually funding through, uh, you know, they're hiring marketing companies to promote the armed services. Yeah. It's every halftime show basically. Exactly. And that's all paid for. That's all paid for by tax dollars. And what he does is he pulls aside the curtain and gives us the truth. And the truth is hilarious, really disturbing and kind of gritty in a way that you just don't, get unless you talk to a veteran who's going to tell you the truth and tell it to you completely. The voice of this book is fantastic. It's really like stark, um, but also funny, really funny and satiric, but not overtly. So not, he's not trying hard to make his point. He's simply Mm -hmm. presenting his point in the way that um, as a professor of 19th century American literature, I admire of, let's say, the slave narratives of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs, who just told the brutal truth and let us be shocked by it instead of saying, oh, my God, you won't believe what's really going on in the Navy. You know what I mean? Like he's just he's just sort of letting other people's words have the power that they have. And he's letting his own kind of experiences speak for themselves in a very restrained way, but also kind of humorous and endearing. You end up trusting and loving the voice of our narrator and also getting a whole variety of voices from people he interviewed or people who sort of show up and speak about stuff. Yeah, as you were saying that, it reminded me, now it's a different style of novel, but I remember uh, reading Catch-22 and getting that same feeling of... There you go, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and and, and you end up thinking, wow, that's pretty inept and ridiculous. Like the bureaucracy is, is really frustratingly... Uh, inept, but it's the way things are. So, you know, everybody needs you to toe the line and, and do the right thing. But, at the, but Stevens, either his narrator or the other characters are just saying, wait, what? 
it's, and it's a, you know, and it's a, and it's a situation where you're, you're not really allowed to say, I don't like this and I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, exactly. You simply have to do it. But you can write a book about it. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so that's all of our recommendations. I should point out that uh, White Plains is still available. <laughs> and if you haven't read that, you know, it's one of the best books in the last five years, I'd say. <laughs> so uh, that's by a little known author named David Hicks. Yeah, that's yeah. enough. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. It's a, it's a great novel. It really is. <laughs> Thanks. Do you have anything else you want to add? Well, I think we might add a, a few other recommendations on our list on the, if we post this on our pop, podcast or online, we could add a few recommendations as well. But also we have more to, we have more to recommend coming soon. Yes, this is, uh, this is going to become a regular feature where we'll just do an episode uh, periodically for things that we recommend and things that we p- think people should be, should be checking out. I, I'm actually just excited to read some books that, are, that have just come out recently so that I can recommend them to others um, if I like them. Okay, <laughs> that's a good plan. So uh, just to let everyone know, I have revamped the wordafterwordpodcast.com website. We're going to be putting up more articles, not only the podcast episodes itself, but also recommendations, related articles. We're going to have dedicated pages to each of the authors we speak to. So, uh, so that it's going to be growing and there's going to be a lot to, uh, to check out if you want to go and take a look. Also, I believe David will be writing a featured article for that website as well. Working on it right now. Excellent. Even, even as we speak. I was working on it during the podcast. Excellent. all right so that's it thank you all for listening this is a different type of episode for us and if you enjoyed us let us know we value your feedback and we want to do more episodes like this and on other topics to expand our repertoire having you know in addition to having more guests on we want to have more conversations like this just just with the two of us on the craft of writing and things that we like and recommend Uh, but definitely let us know what you think tell us what what you think about our selections if you have any recommendations of your own Please send them to us. You can send it. Send us an email, comments at wordafterwordpodcast.com or on Twitter. We don't have a Twitter handle dedicated for the show yet, uh, mm-hmm. but you can send comments and feedback to David at Hicks Writer or to me at Daddy Elk. And you can use the hashtag summer reading uh, and then we can pick it up and we can get the whole conversation going and perhaps a library if we get enough recommendations. As I said, all the books we mentioned on the show will be listed and linked in the show notes and on our website, wordafterwordpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and leave a comment on this and any other episode as well. Anything else you want to mention, David? I would love to have our listeners send in their recommendations for summer reading. That'd be great. I, want to, I know you said that. I just want to reiterate it and support yeah. it. Okay. Also, we, we need a new Twitter page devoted to Word After Word. It's shocking that we don't have one. I know. Let's, let's get on that. Yes. Okay. So the only thing left to say is, again, thank you for listening and just keep writing. And for that matter, just keep reading. Nice. Bye, everybody. I really admire uh, about the slave. I'm a 19th century professor, uh, professor of night in a way that uh, (laughs) 
can't laugh in a way, in a way that uh, I'm a 19. 19- <laughs> I just think it's funny that you're stumbling over what you do. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking eloquently about books, but when it comes to this is what Shh, I do for a living. <laughs> All about Lulu was a, was a big, I think his first book. Can you yes, hang on one second? I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry. To yeah, yeah, I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I got a dog <laughs> deciding to chime in. <laughs> Are you done? <laughs> okay. Sorry yeah. about that. All right. that should go in the bloopers. <laughs> word After Word, a podcast on writing, is a Daddy Elf production.